Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Aaron Zellin, the author of Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad. Aaron Zellin is the Richard Borough Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and a visiting research scholar in the Department of Politics at Brandeis University. He is the founder of the website jihadology.net, a primary source archive of global jihadi materials. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You mention in the book that this research sprung from some content you found online, I assume as part of your website. Could you tell us more about jihadology.net and that project? Yeah, so when I was uh, doing my master's thesis, even before this book project, which came out of my PhD dissertation, so this is back in like 2008 to 10 timeframe, my uh, master's thesis was sort of looking at the intellectual evolutions that led to Al-Qaeda's ideology from, you know, the fall of the Ottoman Caliphate up until the end of the Afghan jihad against the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. And as part of the project, I was trying to use primary sources. Um, and uh, at the time, it, was, it wasn't it was that easy to find, you know, content from jihadis online. Um, and many, you know, uh, there weren't that many like classes on the issue really, or professors that really focused on it as much, even, you know, then seven or eight years after 9-11. Um, just through a process of, you know, going through other secondary sources as well as finding my way through the netherworlds of, you know, uh, the internet, I was able to figure out sort of um, this online scene for jihadis, which at the time was mainly on password protected forums. Obviously now it's more on encrypted applications. Um, And so when I finished my master's thesis, I thought, you know, if I was having trouble, you know, uh, trying to find this content and primary sources, I'm sure other graduate students were as well. And that's sort of the basis of why I originally started Jihadology. Um, And it's sort of gone from there. And now it's, you know, uh, started in May 2010. So it's been, you know, a little more than 11 years now, which is hard to believe. Um, In terms of uh, the original question in relation to how that brought me towards this topic in relation to Tunisia, you know, uh, Every morning, I usually would go through these forums and check to see what was being posted by, you know, Al Qaeda um, and their various branches and ideologues and the like. And uh, one day, in around mid to late April 2011, I uh, saw this post there for this conference that was happening in um, in a suburb of Tunis um, for this new group calling itself Ansar al Sharia, the supporters of Islamic law. Um, in Tunisia, and I was quite intrigued by it and curious about it since, you know, uh, you never really heard about any history of Tunisians being involved in this movement previously. Mostly you hear about, you know, like Saudis or Yemenis or Egyptians, maybe Libyans, um, sometimes, you know, Jordanian Palestinians. Um, so uh, as a consequence, it just was curious. And also the fact that most people in the field compared to other Arab states viewed Tunisia as relatively secular and cosmopolitan, even the local Islamist uh, movement there, Anafta, um, uh, was considered more moderate than most um, uh, Muslim brotherhood like organizations. 
So the fact that only within a few months of the 2011 revolution that there was this new jihadi group trying to start um, was quite curious. And that kind of just brought me down this rabbit hole, which eventually led to the PhD dissertation and the book project. So you hinted at this in your previous answer with 2011 and the Arab Spring that Tunisia had a really big moment. And there was this perception that you speak about in the book of Tunisia as an example of a democracy with secular institutions and rights for women. Can you talk a little bit more about these events and how this kind of played into the perception of how the world has viewed Tunisia? Yeah. So Tunisia, historically, um, since the mid to late 19th century, has been known for having sort of a more progressive political culture than many other Arab countries. It was the first Arab country to have a constitution um, in, in the mid-1800s. And also, eventually, in 1956, when it gained its independence from France after France's uh, colonial adventures in, in Tunisia and North Africa in general, um, uh, created uh, the most progressive uh, set of laws related to women's rights in the Arab world. Um, and therefore, it was perceived as more open um, and had more rights in general for people than elsewhere in the region. Of course, um, you know, from 1956 until 2011, it was still an authoritarian regime. It wasn't, you know, a liberal democracy by any stretch of the imagination. But people did have more rights uh, compared to other places. Um, so that's sort of where this perception was created. And even, you know, the local Islamist group, which started to percolate in the late 1960s, early 1970s as a reaction to um, Habib Bourguiba, who was the founding president after uh, colonialism period, um, you know, and he had this whole secularization project. Um, the Islamist movement, unlike, say, uh, in other Arab states, which were calling for a complete transformation of society and instituting um, Islamic law everywhere, they were more just looking for a place for Islam and society in of itself, you know, for people to go pray in the mosque and be able to act as a Muslim without harassment. Uh, so their um, initial claims, at least, were um, not as large as, say, other Islamist movements in the region. Um, uh, but over time, as Anatta grew, um, it became seen as more of a sort of threat towards the power of first Bourguiba, um, and then later his successor, Bin Ali, who came into power in the late 1980s. Um, and as a result, uh, eventually, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, under Bin Ali, um, who was the person that eventually was overthrown in 2011, uh, he uh, cracked down upon Anakta and jailed many of its leaders and members, um, uh, while a number of its uh, cadre essentially fled to Europe, um, especially in London or in uh, France and Italy. Um, and amongst some of these individuals, uh, they radicalized as a consequence of what happened. Um, and in these new environments in Europe, especially in the early to mid-90s, when you started to see the beginnings of these jihadi networks in Europe in general, not just for Tunisians, but other uh, expat Arabs um, who had been involved in jihadism prior and had to flee their own countries, whether 
um, in Egypt or Algeria or Libya due to fighting against their own local regimes um, helped sort of build the basis of some initial networks, which originally helped out with some of the facilitation logistics for the Algerian civil war in the 1990s, as well as foreign fighting in Bosnia during, um, uh, you know, the Bosnian war. Um, and that sort of then went from there. Of course, there were some Tunisians that had mobilized to fight in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. Um, but you really started to see the crystallization of the movement that became what it was uh, in the early to mid-1990s, where so many, uh, or I shouldn't say so many, but uh, a number of Tunisians uh, started to intersect with one another within these jihadi networks, which would lead to other mobilizations in the future. Tying it back to what you saw online, it seems that there was this contrast between what you were seeing being posted around 2011, what was happening in the country, which led you to look at some of this history to develop some deeper context. And part of the book really dives into some of those areas that you were just speaking about. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more of the history of the mobilization of foreign fighters in Tunisia. Yeah, that's exactly what was one of the key parts of the book. Um, You know, for many uh, Tunisians getting involved with this group on Sol Sharia after 2011 was seen as a bit bizarre. Many people in Tunisia were wondering how all these people came about. It seemed like it came out of nowhere. And you sort of saw the same type of um, quizzed, uh, you know, uh, looks or ideas that people had when all these Tunisians ended up being in Iraq, Syria, and Libya in relation to foreign fighting in the last decade as well. Um, But uh, if you look at the history, which I wanted to do because I thought that that would help uh, you know, explain what happened after 2011, could see that for, um, you know, 20 to 30 years prior to the 2011 revolution, there had been Tunisians involved in jihadism. Um, and they weren't necessarily footnotes either. And in the book, I get into specific cases of particular individuals, um, and there's a ton of detail. So I don't want to get into it all on, on a podcast, um, since it might be a, a little boring. Um, uh, but essentially, uh, you know, around 400 Tunisians went to Afghanistan in the 1980s um, and joined up with the fight against the Soviet Union. About 100 of them were killed. 300 survived. Um, many Tunisians couldn't return home because Ben Ali would have jailed them. And, and therefore, this then helped buttress some of the networks that were already percolating in Europe as well, between those that had fled Tunisia to go to Europe um, uh, versus those that had went to Afghanistan and then just went to Europe from there. Um, uh, and, and, and Tunisians were, uh, very well known for sort of document forgery. Um, and they're usually middlemen within these broader networks. And that's part of the reason why many people didn't realize Tunisians were so deeply involved in these networks was because they weren't really the senior leaders in any organizations or any, uh, top ideologues within the broader movement. Um, and also because they were sort of these middlemen involved mainly in logistics and facilitation and to a lesser extent foreign fighting, they're highly connected to various groups that were operating. They weren't specific to one. And therefore, depending on which conflict zone was the hottest one at the time, whether it was the Algerian Civil War or the Bosnian uh, War or 
lesser extent Chechnya, and then later, obviously, the return to Afghanistan in the late 1990s when the Taliban took over, um, the Tunisians were able to shift focus to the particular conflict or group that was in charge because they weren't loyal to any one particular one, um, which also made them highly connected as well, um, which then is also another one of the key explanations then for why um, you saw so many Tunisians eventually become foreign fighters after 2011 walls because they're highly connected within the broader movement. If you look at sort of the post 9-11 era, then um, you sort of had the development of the second generation of uh, Tunisian jihadists uh, that got involved in the broader global jihadi movement. Um, part of this was sparked, of course, because of the 2003 uh, war in Iraq. Um, Tunisians were some of the earliest foreign fighters to the war, some even going in the fall of 2002 before the U.S. even invaded uh, when Abu Musab al-Zarqawi uh, set up shop in uh, Kurdistan in northern Iraq after um, he fled Afghanistan when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in late 2001. Um, so as a result, um, many Tunisians started to work their way up within the jihadi movement, I guess you could say, through the Iraq War and Zarqawi's organization, which is the predecessor to what we now know as um, ISIS or the Islamic State. Um, and, and one of the important things, too, was that um, a number of key Tunisians had been involved in a lot of the facilitation and recruitment for foreign fighters that went to Iraq after 2003. So a number of Tunisians were in charge of safe houses in Syria before people went from Syria into Iraq. Um, the head of the Al-Qaeda network in Turkey was actually a Tunisian for about a year or two and around 2006-7. And then around 2007 or 8, um, uh, an individual named uh, Tarek Al-Harzi um, became the head of um, the Islamic State of Iraq's whole foreign fighter operation in terms of uh, recruitment um, and bringing people in and then everything related to that. So uh, you had a Tunisian that essentially from 2007-8 up until he was eventually killed in around 2015, if I recall off the top of my head, who was the head of the Islamic State's foreign fighter network, essentially. So you could see how then uh, these connections that could be made between those that were in Iraq and then those that eventually would be operating openly after the 2011 revolution. Um, so uh, to return to Tunisia itself after 2011, um, Anshul Sharia was essentially an al-Qaeda front group. Um, they were primarily focused on Dawa or outreach proselytization type of activities instead of just sort of jihad fighting type of deal. Um, part of this was because of the open conditions in Tunisia, so they didn't feel like they needed to be involved in violence. Um, and this was sort of the ideas of Abu Ayyad al-Tunisi, who many or who uh, can be described in many ways as sort of uh, the godfather of the Tunisian jihadi movement, having been involved in it going back to the early 1990s and having studied um, in London under Abu Qatar al-Filistini, who's one of the top ideologues in the jihadi movement in general. Um, he uh, originally helped co-found the Tunisian combatant group in uh, June 2000 um, in Afghanistan after the Taliban took over the areas. Um, and he actually helped um, uh, uh, conduct the assassination of Ahmed Shah Massoud two days before uh, 9-11, who was the key Northern Alliance leader that the U.S. had been allies with 
and who would have been a key person who would then would have been relied upon after 9-11 to then fight the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Um, so Abu Ayyad and the Tunisian command group essentially provided this uh, um, a gift um, for the Taliban as well as Al-Qaeda. Um, uh, fast forward now back to 2011, he then helped create Ansar al-Sharia. Um, and one of the things that was important that happened after 2011, because of this blind spot people had in Tunisia in general about jihadism, um, was that people didn't take these guys seriously in, in the beginning. Um, and also, it's, it's important to note that uh, in around February, March 2011, there was a general prisoner amnesty in Tunisia uh, in the aftermath of the revolution. And it included not just political prisoners, um, but also jihadists. Uh, and in the book, I described as sort of the original sin of uh, the revolution, um, which provided the initial impetus for them to be able to organize, uh, recruit, mobilize, and the like. But then, um, because the transitional government didn't really have much legitimacy, they primarily were just focused on getting the country to its constituent assembly elections, which would help uh, write the constitution, the new one at least, um, uh, which would occur in October 2011. In that election, Anakta, the Islamist party that I alluded to earlier, um, had the most votes. They didn't have more than 50% in the parliament, so they had to go into a coalition that was called the Troika because there's two other parties. Um, but they were the dominant ones. Um, uh, but unlike the transitional government, which really didn't heed anything related to what Ansar al-Sharia was doing, um, Anatta did have a specific policy related to jihadists, but it was this light-touch approach Um Part of this was related to their own history that I already talked about being cracked down upon um, previously in the late 80s and early 1990s. Um, they felt that if they did something similar to what Ben Ali previously did, then maybe it would lead to a further radicalization of these individuals. And then maybe just like them, 15 or 20 years later, Al-Qaeda would be in, in control of Tunisia, which obviously Anatta didn't want. Um, However, uh, because of this light touch approach, it created this leniency, um, which allowed this group to operate and build up capacities over time through, um, you know, lectures and social services and proto governance activities um, uh, and various um, uh, forums um, and the like. Um, and as a consequence, you got more and more people involved in this movement and for two and a half years, they're legally allowed to operate without too much harassment. Um, of course, this changed over time as a consequence of the fact that even though Abu Ayyad called for this Dawah first approach, um, you know, jihadi ideology is still inherently violent. Um, and eventually, you know, we saw the attack on the U.S. embassy in Tunis in September 2012. We also saw the assassination of two leftist politicians in February and July 2013. And then along the way, there is a, a variety of vigilante type of violence uh, through Hizbah or moral policing, um, essentially by members of the group, which was not sanctioned overtly by the group, but the group didn't really do anything about their members doing it, whether it involved, you know, people drinking alcohol or people eating during Ramadan or, or women wearing perceived scantily clad clothing. 
um, or people having fun and dancing and the like, you know, they would do something against them, whether they uh, first warn somebody or beat somebody. There are cases of some individuals being killed. So as a consequence, those on the secular left and sort of the conservative nationalists in Tunisia uh, in the opposition in the parliament of Tunisia forcibly began to push back against Anakta and sort of this light touch policy, which eventually forced uh, Anakta to begin to crack down upon Ansar al-Sharia beginning in the spring of 2013, um, which culminated eventually in the Tunisian government uh, designating Ansar al-Sharia as a terrorist group in late August 2013. But by then, we obviously already were seeing you know, the mobilization for people to become foreign fighters in Syria to join up first with Jabhat al-Nusra and then later with, of course, ISIS. And because of these historical network connections um, and this larger population of individuals now that, you know, um, got involved with Ansar al-Sharia, they're able to recruit them beginning in the spring of 2013 to First, Libya, because there are some networks there to help train people and then fly from there to Turkey and to Syria. But other times people went straight from Tunisia to Turkey to Syria um, to become foreign fighters there. So you could see how, um, you know, the open environment after the revolution, the historical networks and key leaders in it, um, in many ways helped provide sort of what was seen as this then large scale mobilization of Tunisians to go over there to join up with, um, you know, the jihad in Syria and then, you know, eventually fighting in Iraq as well and uh, to an extent in Libya too. So I'd like to unpack a couple of the things that you mentioned. First, when you talked about Ansar al-Sharia and this group coming on the scene and these, um, this time of, you mentioned the two years between 2011 and 2013, where it was able to take advantage of some of the conditions in Tunisia. Knowing what we know in the first part of your book about the history and about what was going on in Tunisia through many years prior to the Arab Spring, how do you think that this was able to happen? Like, was this a blind spot on the part of the, of the government to allow this group to mobilize during that time? Yeah. I mean, I think there was just a lot of naivete and ignorance on many people's parts. Um, much of the mobilization of Tunisians joining up within the jihadi movement happened outside of its borders in the first place. So um, many people weren't really aware of that uh, in the first place. Um, and those that did get involved locally were arrested and thrown into prison. And based off of conversations I had with former regime officials as part of my field research, they essentially viewed it as just a local phenomenon um, and, and therefore didn't see it as having these more regional or transnational components, which then were able to link up with one another and then be able to you know, hit the ground running once they had the space to do what they wanted to do. Um, it was a bit naive, though, in, in some respects, since even though um, people were arrested locally, um, people were arrested trying to go to places like Iraq, you know, between 2003 and 2010. People were arrested trying to go next door to Algeria when um, uh, AQIM uh, uh, 
originally became part of Al Qaeda and were and were trying to build themselves back up after sort of then becoming uh, less relevant following the Algerian civil war in the 1990s. Um, and so there were people that were involved more in a homegrown space that were connected to these regional networks as well. So it was it was definitely um, uh, the regime in many respects uh, drinking its own Kool-Aid in, in some regards and thinking that it was so good at what it was doing because there were no um, really uh, large-scale campaigns within Tunisia. Of course, there was a 2002 um, Jerba synagogue bombing, which was Al-Qaeda's first external operation after 9-11. Um, and then there was also a short-lived insurgency in, 2000, in late 2006, early 2007, um, based off of networks from AQIM in Algeria, uh, from Tunisians that had gone to Algeria to train and then went into Tunisia um, uh, to try and build up a branch of uh, AQIM there. Um, but so in many respects, I, I boil it down to, you know, just uh, – poor policy in many respects. And those in the transitional government after 2011, really, uh, you know, they weren't looking who was being released from prison. It was kind of just like anybody that was in prison was released. They weren't going through it and being like, oh, there was 1,200 people here that had previously been involved in the jihadi movement that were now releasing on the streets. And about 300 or so of those who had previously, you know, been in Afghanistan or Iraq or Somalia or Yemen um, and then, of course, on top of that, uh, after the country opened up, uh, those Tunisians that had previously been foreign fighting abroad or maybe been a part of networks in, in Europe also um, came to Tunisia as well to join up. So you had this influx of things. And then another dynamic that occurred sort of uh, in 2003 to 2010 prior to the uprising and revolution was that you had sort of this intermingling of the first generation uh, of Tunisian jihadis with the second generation of Tunisian jihadis within the prison system itself, because a number of Tunisians who had been arrested in Europe or maybe in Pakistan or in Iraq um, and others that had been uh, in Turkey as well who had been arrested, um, including Abu Ayyad, uh, the aforementioned individual that I've spoken about, um, they were able to get to know one another, learn from their past experiences, and then plan for what they could potentially do if and when they got out of prison. So starting in around 2006, which was uh, the 50th anniversary of Tunisia's independence, Ben Ali actually um, gave amnesty to a number of Anafta uh, uh, leaders uh, and individuals uh, to show, sort of show goodwill um, and this inspired those within the prison system, including Abu Ayyad, to think that maybe they themselves would eventually become out of come out of prison. Um, and this sort of led to the initial impotence for what became Ansar al-Sharia five years later. Mm -hmm. So they had already been thinking about and planning what they're potentially going to do as well. So, um, you know, this planning and organization was key to uh, this mobilization also. Um, so there are a lot of things happening uh, that led to what we ended up seeing and all of the pieces sort of came together for it to work out because of these various dynamics. If one thing here or there might've been different, it might've been a totally different scenario or situation, but because of all these various processes, um, whether historical, whether internal to the movement, whether external in terms of government policy, 
um, and, and, and then, you know, external things in, in relation to what hap- was happening outside of Tunisia after 2011, all created um, uh, these opportunities for Tunisian jihadists to exploit, whether locally in the beginning um, and then more regionally after the crackdown in 2013, when they're more situated abroad. Um, and in many ways, what we saw from you know spring 2011 until fall 2013 was an anomaly in the history of the Tunisian jihadi movement, where historically it's been characterized more by you know people being involved in foreign fighting or people being involved in logistics and facilitation or being involved in you know planning potential plots and attacks. Um, so what we see nowadays is more the historical norm than anything. You mentioned that you spoke with some of these folks in your field work. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your field work was like and some of the people that you got to speak with. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, I had the opportunity to do a number of field research trips to Tunisia uh, first in 2012 and 13 when I was initially intrigued by this topic. Um and that was even before I really began my PhD. It was more just, you know, curiosity and also had some writings related to what was going on in terms of my day job at the Washington Institute. Um, and then later on, uh, towards the end of the process, when I was turning the PhD into a book, I, I was able to do a num- uh, some re- field research trips again in 2017 to 19 timeframe again within Tunisia too. Um, and while I was there on these various trips, I, as I said before, I talk, talked to some former regime officials. I also had the opportunity to speak with some people within Anafta's network. Um, I also spoke to civil society activists. Um, I, I spoke to people in other political parties that were uh, in government outside of Anafta, such as Nida Tunis, which, is, which was sort of a, um, you know, a, a, nationalist, conservative nationalist type of party. Um, And then on top of that, I I was very lucky enough to have the opportunity to actually meet uh, members of Ansar al-Sharia itself. Um, You know, I I was able to interview a number of members. I was able to go to some of their Dao events. Um, I went to some of their mosques. Um, And then I even initially had an opportunity to meet somebody who uh, had returned from foreign fighting in Syria in the early stages, all the way in 2013, um, when they came back to Tunisia and, and had some interesting initial insights in relation to that. So I was trying to, you know, talk to a number of different people um, from various spheres within society beyond just, you know, the jihadists themselves to get a, a, a bigger picture um, what was going on con- uh, in the contemporary scene, but also maybe getting some, you know, historical views as well. Um, and then just being there on a day-to-day basis, you know, I, I tried not to do the typical thing many Westerners do, just staying in a hotel in downtown Tunis. Um, you know, I stayed with Tunisians in their own homes and apartments. I traveled outside of the capital. I was in a number of smaller villages, um, as well as cities um, more, uh, you know, outside of the coastal areas. So I was able to get this a different feeling than, you know, one would just get, um, you know, just being in the capital and uh, not really seeing how life was like elsewhere. 
So that really helped give me an additional layer of perspective and understanding than I would have gotten otherwise. Um, it, it, was a, it was a very uh, fascinating experience. Obviously, uh, especially in 2012 and 13, when Ansar al-Sharia was openly operating, it was a unique time period. And I was lucky that I had the opportunity to speak to these folks um, uh, because obviously now it'd be impossible to talk to jihadists inside of Tunisia because it's complete, completely clandestine again in many respects, and therefore it would not be safe or dangerous. So I think it's important to note that the particular time period uh, when I was there in the early stages of the field research, um, you know, isn't necessarily replicable in Tunisia itself or in most other cases in other countries. So, you know, in terms of safety, obviously, I advise against just trying to talk to jihadists uh, just because you can because of safety issues. Only if, you know, uh, things are in a similar scenario, which isn't really the case anymore. Um, so I just think that's an important caveat for those that might be listening that are also could be young, younger researchers, too, because I think safety is always important in these, in these situations. Um, you know, as we saw with, unfortunately what happened with the kidnapped journalists and humanitarian workers in Syria in relation to ISIS, things could go very wrong very quickly. Um, so I think it's important to note that as well. Thanks for that, uh, <laughs> that disclaimer too. I think the unique time period that you're speaking of, and you mentioned, um, some of the Dawa events and, that was another thing I wanted to try to unpack a little bit was that Dawa first strategy. And it's, it's interesting in the context of some of this foreign mobilization history and other things going on in Tunisia, that this is definitely a strategic choice to focus in this way. And I was hoping you could explain a little bit more of what that strategy of Dawa means uh, maybe what those events that you observed look like and how those were used strategically by AST. Sure. So a lot of this strategy was born out of Al-Qaeda's broader lessons in relation to what happened in Iraq the decade prior. Um, as those who you know uh, followed what was going on in Iraq, uh, uh, Zarqawi was extremely violent, uh, excessive in it, um, and therefore this turned uh, the population off to him, not only those that were his enemies, but those that would have been sort of the natural constituency for al-Qaeda in Iraq, Islamic State of Iraq. Um, uh, and that's what led to uh, the tribal awakening or the Sahwa movement, uh, uh, and w- alongside you know the U.S. surge of troops led to sort of at least the tactical defeat of the Islamic State of Iraq by 2009 or so. Um, obviously, we know, again, why I use the word tactical, because they're able to come back and became even stronger following 2013 or so, and what we saw with ISIS, Islamic State, and everything that's happened since. Um, but because of what happened in Iraq, and, and as we know, Al-Qaeda was disgusted by what Zarqawi was doing, and there were a series of letters that were sent to Zarqawi between Al-Qaeda leadership and him. Uh, Al-Qaeda was trying to build back legitimacy because its name became toxic, which is part of the reason why the group in Tunisia was calling itself Ansar al-Sharia and why a number of groups after the Arab uprisings had the moniker Ansar al-Sharia or a different name in of itself, like Jabhat al-Nusra in Syria. 
Or, for example, when al-Shabaab pledged Baya, its leader, to uh, first bin Laden and later after bin Laden was killed, Ayman al-Zawahri, um, they just kept the name al-Shabaab instead of becoming al-Qaeda in East Africa or what have you. Um, so that's one aspect of it. Um, and then the second aspect was that they're trying to win hearts and minds. And in the beginning, before 2011, um, there wasn't the space for Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda branches to operate really locally in an open manner, like we saw after 2011 in Tunisia or in other countries that become civil wars, uh, which became more safe havens than, say, public squares. Um, so a lot of advice and ideas in relation to Dawa um, and, and reaching out to populations was done through their online apparatus. Um, so there are a variety of video series and essays in relation to um, being a better Muslim, um, proper ways to be a Muslim, how to operate in various environments as sort of a jihadist organization and the like. And sort of the culmination of this was a set of guidelines that Ayman al-Zawahri actually ended up putting out in September 2013, which sort of became sort of the rules of engagement in some respects. Um, but then after 2011, um, uh, the groups um, that came about after then, whether it was Ansar al-Shri in Tunisia, Ansar al-Shri in Libya, AQAP rebranding themselves as Ansar al-Shri in Yemen, uh, Jabhat al-Nusra in Syria, you saw them focusing more on this issue of Dawah. Of course, in the Tunisian context, because there wasn't a civil war, um, uh, there wasn't sort of this large-scale violent aspect of what was going on. So because of the particular conditions in Tunisia, it was just purely a Dawah-first approach. Um, and part of it, too, is they felt after, you know, um, you know, 65 plus years of authoritarian rule and the secularization project, most Tunisians didn't even know a lot of basics related to Islam, um, at least according to, you know, jihadis' interpretation of what was going on there. And therefore, it was first necessary to educate uh, those within Tunisian society to uh, their way of thinking before jihad was even possible. Because if you don't understand the reasons for jihad in the first place, then you wouldn't want to be sympathetic to what they're potentially doing in terms of the violent aspect of things. Um, so that's part of the reason why, at least in the Tunisian context, we saw as mainly a Dao first, whereas in, say, you know, like Libya or Yemen or Syria, you started to see the implementation of these Dawah programs there locally too, but because there are these civil wars there, there was obviously also fighting involved, insurgency in the way you would typically see. Um, uh, so, so in many respects, Tunisia was very unique in that way because there was the overthrow of Din Ali, but there wasn't, you know, any civil war situation afterwards, and because of. Uh, the initial space that the transitional government gave because they're mainly focused on the constituent assembly elections. And then because of then Anakta's light touch policy, there was really no need to fight because they're able to openly proselytize and recruit people. And essentially part of this was they gave a bunch of lectures related to their ideology. Um, and then also through social service provision, they used that as in some ways, as a Trojan horse to then spread their ideology. Um, because when they gave social services, whether it's food or, or blankets or medicine <clears throat> um, to uh, people locally, it was also an opportunity for them to then talk about 
what their beliefs were, their ideology. Um, and they also passed out uh, literature to them, whether it's small, uh, you know, uh, pamphlets um, or their group's official magazine, and sometimes even ideological tracts. Um, and then from there, through the social services, there's a way to then recruit potential new individuals could, that could then go to their more formal lectures um, and other activities. And therefore, over time, that would then sort of create this virtuous uh, uh, mobilization from their perspective, where each action would then lead to more people getting involved, which would then lead to more um, resources and capacities, which would then allow them to expand and do more and more areas which would then provide them the space to meet more people and so on and so forth. And that's why they were able to expand. And one of the things to note too, that was important about um, Ansar Shri in particular, which might've been different than say, um, uh, you know, what we've seen with jihadi movements elsewhere is that it wasn't uh, really um, only based in one particular neighborhood in the city or in a particular city of, in of itself. In, in many ways, AST was this national um, movement, which uh, also helped provide sort of the, a larger population then to then be mobilized later on to then go to Iraq, Syria, and Libya to become foreign fighters. Um, and if you look at um, leaked um, ISIS border documents um, from a few years ago, the mobilization for those uh, in these documents, and there was about 700 Tunisians in them, um, so it's a relatively good sample. Um, they were uh, uh, from all over the country as well. So you could see that uh, these networks that AST helped build became key hubs then um, for the foreign fighter recruitment too, um, and that there was the stickiness to these networks because uh, – you know, many of the same places that you saw that were um, involved in AST activities then saw individuals from those same locales become foreign fighters too. So you mentioned both the territorial losses with the Islamic State and some past intersections with ISIS and Al-Qaeda. How does Tunisia, and I guess Tunisians, participation in these activities situate in the context of the larger issues between ISIS and Al-Qaeda? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely complicated. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things we need to remember is that um, uh, up until 2013-14, there really wasn't this overt war. So trying to, you know, uh, use our understanding of this issue between the two groups from uh, more recently and then trying to look back into history, um, I think complicates things more than clarifies things. Um, you know, the fact is Abu Ayyad um, and many Tunisians had historical connections to Al-Qaeda and those people that would eventually become ISIS separate from Al-Qaeda. We have to remember that prior to ISIS breaking from Al-Qaeda, they were part of Al-Qaeda's network too. So people knew each other and didn't have issues with each other. Um, and one of the things is that Abu Ayyad, um, in the beginning of this issue between uh, Jabal al-Nusra and ISIS locally, and then broadly speaking, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, um, 
said that he wasn't going to take sides because of these historical relationships that there were. Um, and as a consequence, um, he sort of um, provided a vacuum for other people to fill it, to um, you know persuade people to join up with one group or the other. So one of the things that happened was that initially Tunisians that went to Syria joined up with Jabhat al-Nusra, which was the main group there. When the split happened, most Tunisians that had been with Jabhat al-Nusra um, ended up uh, siding with ISIS um, since it was originally the parent organization, but was also seen as more legitimate. Um, but also a number of senior leaders that had been part of AST, unlike um, Abu Ayyad, who sort of wanted to remain neutral, um, said that you know they were backing ISIS, whether it was Abu Jafar al-Hattab or Kamal Zarouk or Bilal Shawashi or Bubakar al-Hakim. Um, and, and therefore, this influenced many Tunisians. And then by the time that Abu Ayyad decided that, no, he was sticking with al-Qaeda, um, which was about a year after his neutrality statement, it was already too late by then, since most of the Tunisians that had gone abroad um, had already gone by then, and therefore the influence waned. And one of the things, too, is that um, ISIS situated Abu Ayyad alongside other al-Qaeda leaders as sort of... Uh, selling out um, the broader movement and not truly living up to bin Laden's legacy in many respects, since obviously by then bin Laden had already been killed for a few years. Um, and Abu Ayyad was seen alongside uh, Zawahiri and other leaders within the Al-Qaeda network. Uh, they described them as the Jews of Jihad. Um, and therefore this further undermined him in, in the eyes of, of many potential Tunisians. So although AST was created as this Al-Qaeda front group, um, many and most Tunisian foreign fighters ended up siding with ISIS in this broader war, which um, uh, for you know can be seen as, as sort of a failure of Abu Ayyad in, in some respects um, um, due to his sort of poor leadership in, in the way he dealt with the split within the movement, but can also be seen as, as him trying to hold on to loyalties because of the historical connections he had to individuals that were in the historical al-Qaeda leadership, but also who had, you know, been part of ISIS's historical leadership. Um, so it was complicated in many respects. And while we've talked a lot about foreign fighters, we'd be remiss to not mention the attacks that happened in Tunisia itself in 2015, two large attacks, uh, one in Tunis, which resulted in 22 people killed and another at a resort that killed 38 people. Can you talk a little bit about these and how this fit into how you were understanding the larger issue that you were researching? Yeah. So uh, these attacks that we saw in 2015, and then there was also in March 2016, the failed takeover of Bin Gardan, which was uh, which is a city in uh, southern Tunisia near the Libyan border, um, these were all based off of training camps that were created in Sabratha, Libya, which is about um, uh, 30 kilometers uh, east of the border with Tunisia. Um, this training camp was set up by Tunisians after the 2011 revolution, and included members of Ansar al-Sharia, those that really weren't interested in. Dawa, they were more interested in military activities. They helped uh, train people that would eventually then go on to Syria. Um, but these training camps were also 
where the people that assassinated the two politicians that I alluded to earlier in uh, 2013 trained for it. Um, there's also a failed attack that happened in October 2013, which wasn't actualized, um, but the individuals involved in it um, had trained in this training camp too. When um, ISIS sent a number of Tunisians and Libyans that had been in Syria back to Libya to help build up their capacities in Libya for when um, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in November 2014 would announce that ISIS was expanding beyond Iraq and Syria to a number of wilayat or provinces um, uh, elsewhere, um, one of them including in, in Libya, uh, these individuals essentially co-opted this uh, training camp network in Sabrath and it became an ISIS training camp instead of one related to Ansar al-Shariya in Tunisia and Ansar al-Shariya in Libya. Um, so this training camp was also then used for the preparation um, and guidance in relation to the attacks at the Bardo Museum in Tunis and then the Sousse Beach attack, as well as the failed takeover of uh, Bin Gardan. So you could see that um, there was sort of this residual um, connection between what we saw earlier within Tunisia and then what we saw later when ISIS came to the fore and then was involved in these attacks in Tunisia too. Um, uh, and that once again highlights, um, you know, if, if, if you go back to what we talked about earlier with uh, sort of the pre-2011 networks, that there are these individuals that are involved in a, a variety of activity that depending on what's going on will then shift what they're doing based off of what's the hottest uh, conflict or group and what's going on there. And this is just a continuation of it, which uh, makes, you know, makes an important point that we need to recognize that, you know, these networks that we've seen over the last 10 years, even if it seems um, less prominent now because ISIS has since lost territory, um, things aren't, um, you know, as uh, active in terms of recruitment or attacks as they had been previously. Um, but whenever another opportunity might arise, these networks will be there and ready to operate again in, in a manner that will be helpful for the jihadi movement, um, of course, from their perspective. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think it, it's, it's good, though, that one of the positives that actually came out of at least the failed takeover of Ben Gurdan was that it gave confidence to the Tunisian political class, as well as the military, that they can push back against ISIS um, because they they were worried after the two or large scale um, attacks in civilian areas the year prior. Um, and that helped then push back IS um, from Tunisia. And over the last five or six years, they slowly have degraded um, both uh, ISIS's networks um, locally, but even AQIM's networks, which have been more based in the mountains near Algeria and haven't really been involved in large-scale attacks against urban areas and civilians, but more military targets in the mountainous regions. Um, so in many ways today, um, Tunisia is in its best spot vis-a-vis -vis jihadism since the actual revolution. Um, however, unlike prior to 2011, um, there's a lot more people involved now than there had previously. Um, and we're in a relatively similar situation as uh, the 
Tunisian government had been before, where the movement's primarily characterized by people being involved abroad as foreign fighters or being involved in logistics and facilitation. Or as we've seen in Europe, there have been a number of plots and attacks in, in a number of European countries that Tunisians have been involved with. We also have the issue of the prison system, too, um, where now there are many Tunisian jihadists that are in prison. And based off of the research I've done, you know, they're in control of certain wings of these prisons in the same way we see gangs are in other contexts. Um, and they're rehabilitation and reintegration schemes are very inchoate in many ways um and and uh, people aren't separated so there's still this peer pressure even if you might be disillusioned with the movement um um but you're forced to sort of stay within it because of these dynamics within the prison system and then of course we have the issues of uh tunisians as well as others that are either imprisoned if they're men um, or if they're women and children in these IDP camps in Northeast Syria um, that haven't been returned home because um, just like in many Western European countries, there isn't a political will and many uh, citizens within Tunisia do not want to bring um, these Tunisians back home. Um, we have to remember that uh, in many ways, because Tunisia is a democracy, it's more akin to what we've seen in Western Europe um, where the citizenry has has a say in and what's going on. And, um, and therefore it's a similar dynamic. Whereas, as we've seen with, uh, more authoritarian countries like in the Caucasus or central Asia, um, where they have brought back their citizens because the government can just do whatever they want. Cause it's not a democracy there. That being said, um, recent political developments in Tunisia could augur potential complications, um, because of, uh, case Saeed, the current president, uh, suspending and freezing the parliament and many people viewing it as sort of a political coup. And therefore many are worried that it could lead to authoritarianism returning to Tunisia um, and one man rule. It's still too early to know. I'm a little um, worried about that. Um, and therefore this could lead to um, jihadis trying to test the capacities of uh, Tunisia again by sending operatives there um, and possibly trying to do attacks or uh, an insurgency again um, in, in more of a, a medium term. But unlike in the past, say after 2011, where you had this prisoner amnesty and there was this light touch policy, I'm highly skeptical that Kais Saeed would do anything along those lines. Um, so in many respects, if things play out in more of this autocratic trajectory, um, uh, it would be more similar to what we saw with uh, during the Ben Ali era, sort of, uh, uh, you know, going back to how things were previously, where there is a deep crackdown locally. Um, there is this prisoner population, but much of the jihadi activism for Tunisians would be happening abroad. Whether um, the people around Kaysay have learned from the Ben Ali era and are less um, ignorant and naive about the situation and the connections is hard to know. Um, but it is interesting um, that only within 10 years of this monumental um, uh, activities by Tunisian jihadists that in some ways it's, 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 it's returning to how it has been historically in many ways too. 
This is great to get your assessment of where we're at now, especially because, as you mentioned, Tunisia's president suspended the parliament, I think it was July 25th for a month. And so at this point that we are speaking right now, we really are (laughs) waiting and watching to see what will happen um, in the coming weeks, I guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's halfway through this one month deadline that uh, Saeed said that he was going to do to figure things out. Um, I'm personally skeptical of the guy. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's had authoritarian tendencies since he's ran for president originally, um, in the fall of 2019. Um, but we'll see. I mean, obviously I can't predict the future. Um, it's, it's always hard to talk about, um, fluid situations in a podcast when somebody could be potentially listening to this in like a year and it's like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so I don't want to like comment too much, but, um, but yeah, what I said about the current status, um, you know, I, I don't think it'll it'll change too much um, uh, based off of what's going on now, just in terms of the fact that we've already seen after the original crackdowns really in 2014 or so and since that uh, even though, you know, uh, there is some activity here and there every once in a while in Tunisia in relation to jihadi plots and attacks, since uh, you know the crackdown in thirteen and fourteen, it it really is um, back to how it was prior to two thousand eleven again in terms of its historical ways of operating outside of Tunisia too. Well, Aaron, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you share what you're working on next? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, uh, you know, besides Tunisia, I've always uh, also mainly focused on um, what's been going on in relation to the jihadi movement in Syria. So much of my work focuses on now um, sort of what the status of ISIS is after they lost their territory um, in March 2019 and whether they're coming back or it's remaining stagnant and the like, sort of the uh, different dynamics in relation to what's going on in Northeast Syria with the a whole camp um, where the women and children are based. And then beyond that, if we're looking toward Northeast Syria, or I mean, Northwest Syria, I should say, um, uh, the evolution of Hayat Tahrir Sham, which is the group that used to be called Jebat al-Nusra, and sort of their transformation from originally being part of ISIS and then being part of Al-Qaeda and now being sort of this independent jihadi entity um, that really isn't with the global jihadist movement anymore, um, even though they still have an extreme worldview. They're more of a national jihadi group in some ways and kind of are trying to consolidate their control over the territories um, that they're operating in in northern uh, Idlib and western Aleppo. So um, for now, much much of the focus is on uh Syria, since there's a lot more dynamics going on, whereas in Tunisia these days, it's uh, relatively more status quo in, in some in some ways in, in terms of the jihadi movement. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show today and talking to us about your work. No problem at all. Happy to do it. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Your Sons Are At Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad by Aaron Zellin is available now from Columbia University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books in National Security, 
a podcast channel on the New Books Network.